Hello and welcome to Called the Queer, where we hold space for the queer Mormon women, genderqueer, and intersex experiences. I'm Kate, and my pronouns are she, he, they. And I'm Colette, and my pronouns are she, her. Today, we're talking with Suksavan Kivorabu, and we're so excited for this conversation. But before we jump into that, we, as always, want to see what brought us queer joy this week. So, Colette, what brought you queer joy this week? We are recording on the Monday after the Affirmation Conference, and that was total queer joy. It was really interesting attending Affirmation this year, first time in person for several years with COVID and everything. And it was my first time going and just being totally comfortable with myself. And... I, my girlfriend came along and it was super fun introducing her to people and it was fun seeing Kate for the first time in person since we started the podcast and it was just so nice. My girlfriend said actually like it was so nice to be in a place where people just assume you are good and I was like oh I don't think I've ever heard it expressed that way before. But that really hit me that people there do just assume you're good. There's no, oh, you're queer. That must mean you struggle, that you're bad, that you're making wrong choices. Mm-hmm. We're accepted wherever you are. And it was neat. I helped coordinate and be on this panel of Ask a Sex Therapist. And uh, me and then a couple of cemetery providers were on it. And we had questions, someone asking about how to deal with sexual attraction and sex in a mixed orientation marriage Then a gay man asked about anal sex with his partner. And then someone asked about being dysphoric while they are with a sexual partner. And it was just everything. And it was so cool that we could talk about these things in this queer Mormon space. And I, I loved it. Yeah, I attended that session. It was excellent. Very much appreciated that. It's been on my mind a lot recently or over the past couple of days since we went. So thank you for that panel. That was great. My queer joy is also affirmation. I wondered if it would be. (laughs) (laughs) My mom came to affirmation. I was like. It was so cool meeting your mom. It was having parents come to those sort of things just gives me total queer joy as well. Yeah, it was really cool. I was very excited to just like introduce her to my crowd, you know, and to actually, you know, get to, have people show her how to use my pronouns is also a mm. thing, a big thing. And seeing how normal that was, was really nice, really cool. So, And you got to wear your Marin Morris t-shirts that you talked about on a previous yes. episode. Yes, I did. <laughs> so I fun. Did. It was awesome. Okay. Suksavan, tell us your queer joy. Yeah. So I have two. One of them is really short. The first one is that we're recording on Indigenous Peoples Day. And I think, right, that's a very special moment for all of us. And I think being Indigenous and having this day previously known as like, right, the Colonizers Day, but we're changing that. I think it's going to be, it feels good, you know, and then seeing all these really great posts on Instagram of all like Indigenous joy, Indigenous thrivance right it's really cool but my my second one really quick is I think another queer joy is like I've just been learning a lot about loving you know and I always tell people and I've told people this recently like 
make friends with queer and trans people because you will learn how to love yourself and love other people. Uh, you might think that you may know, but if you don't have friends with queer and trans people, you actually don't know how to really love a lot of other people because there's so much that we bring into the world that a lot of people don't realize. And I think that's really cool. But I, I've been thinking about that a lot recently. I love that. Yeah. So good. So I'm really excited for this conversation. Kate is the one who brought you to my attention. And so I'm super excited to get to hear your story as the listeners do. But Kate, I think, has a disclaimer before we ask you. <laughs> yeah, a couple things. So before the disclaimer, your pronouns? I totally forgot. My pronouns are they, them, or all pronouns. I do want to start with a disclaimer for this episode because we're going to talk about hard things. We're going to talk about just like cover a lot of things, but the hard things in particular are going to bring up emotions for people, especially the people whose families are impacted by this conversation or by this history. If your family has a colonizing history, this is going to feel uncomfortable or it might feel uncomfortable and it might be your first reaction to reach out to Souk Savan and unload some white settler guilt. And we want to discourage that. We, we for sure want to encourage you researching and following Souk Savan, all those things, but maybe not reaching out and unloading every, all of your family history or anything like that. And we're going to repeat that again at the end, because I, I think it's really important that we take care of our guests who have already honored us with so much time. Yeah. So let's, let's jump into your queer story or your story mm -hmm. and we'll go from there. Yeah. So thank you so much for, for having me. I'm super excited to be here. My name is Suksavan Kia Vorbuth. I use they, them, or all pronouns. I am Dene, an enrolled member of the Dene Nation, or people have often heard Navajo, the Navajo Nation. I use Dene because that is the term that we named ourselves. Navajo is actually a colonized name that was given to us. I think it means like thieves, which it translates to, I think in Spanish or something. But we were named by the, the Spanish. And then I think the English just took it up. And so I like to try to, a lot of my work is trying to reclaim our naming and naming of ourselves. Um, and so Dene is the proper term for our people. It translates to the people, but also translates to five finger beings, people with five fingers. And so it's a very interesting and unique term because it describes a lot of things and it's not gendered in a particular way or it's not cis hetero in a particular way, right? And so we can, there's some ways that we can play with the name to create a better future for Dine people. A little bit about me, I am also multiracial. I like to name that as well, because I think there is this conversation and dichotomy between Indigenous, non-Indigenous, but then multiracial people come into it, right? And so what does it mean to be multiracial and Indigenous? And I actually say that we're both, right? So I am 
Dene. My mom is Dene, and my dad is Laotian from Laos. And he actually came to America during the Vietnam War. And for people who don't know, it wasn't only Vietnam that was impacted by the Vietnam War. It was actually a lot of Southeast Asia. And so my family, my father and his family fled the war and came to America. When he came to America, he, his name was actually Suksavan Kiyovorbuth. And then when he came, and we all know, and we've seen the rhetoric of this past pandemic, right? It wasn't good to be Asian at the time, let alone being documented as Asian, right? And so he changed his name to Tom Kiyovorbuth, hopefully disguising that he's not like Asian, Asian, right? And I put that in air quotes. And then eventually over time, I met my mom and my mom, I'm the youngest of three children. And my mom actually gave me his name. So that's why my name is Suksavan Tom Kiyovorbuth. And it's a story I like to tell because it's, it's really, I feel like it's fueled and informed by a lot of trauma. But also I think me saying it out loud is healing in a lot of ways, right? Side note, I've been in some instances where people are like, can I get a, a nickname or a shorter name for you? And I'm like, no. <laughs> and so I, and I, and I often get it by a lot of um, white people who, who do not want to put in the effort or work to say my name. And so I've been thinking a lot about academia. What does it mean to be in a PhD program? And so I'm using Suksavan T keyboard booth intentionally in my work because I want people to use my name, right? I think it's very powerful because I think a lot of folks have been like lazy to to say my name <laughs> and I let it slide for so long. And now I'm like, I'm not going to let it slide anymore. Absolutely. But, yeah. But anyway, so I, I am currently, it's so wild to say a fourth year PhD student candidate which is wild to say as well. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, where I'm actually in two PhD programs, which is wild to say as well. So I am enrolled at Oregon State University in Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies in a PhD program there. So a PhD candidate at Oregon State. And then I got into a codetel. It's called a codetel, which I think is a French word. I don't know what it translates to, but it's a French word for like a dual degree. Um, and so I'm in a codetel in Sydney, Australia at Macquarie University in Indigenous Studies. And so it kind of worked out because I only applied for PhD programs in Native American Studies, Indigenous Studies, and Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies. So I'm getting both. So I'm like, oh, I lucked out here. And, and a lot of my work, and this is where we'll dive into the topic, actually. So my research entails a lot of reclaiming of my story, reclaiming of my family's story, going through trauma that my family has endured and kind of bring it to light to make change for future generations. I was actually born and raised in, in Phoenix, Arizona. My family is originally from the Four Corners. Most folks I feel on this podcast might know what the Four Corners are. Uh, so Utah, yeah. uh, when I went to Oregon, they're like, what's the Four Corners? <laughs> uh, Utah, uh, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, right? So my traditional homelands extends a lot of that, but because of colonization was shortened, cut down. And so we're in part of Utah mostly in Arizona, and then a big chunk in New Mexico. 
And so my mom, and this is where like the kind of the story begins. My mom moved to Phoenix before I was born and that's where I was born and raised. And, and so I used to, I really interesting because it goes back to this native identity and, and what does it mean to be native and what does it mean to be urban native? Right. And I think this is a terminology that has been used to what's it called? Like to make native people who were raised in the city to feel as though they're less than right. Um, there's this dichotomy between urban and reservation, as I mentioned, like indigenous, non-indigenous, and there's so much in between. There's like, and so I actually like the term now and I'm like, I'm an urban native, but like I use it in a way to, to flip that narrative because I think it's been used on me and I've been made to feel so insecure about my native identity. And I feel like I probably know more stuff about like my culture, my identity, my indigeneity, right? Based on my native or my urban identity and kind of how that sparked. And a lot of people think it's just easy, like, like native people just move to cities. Yes, that is the case. But a lot of people don't realize that moving to a city for job opportunities, because you can't get a job in your hometown, that is actually displacement. It's a form of displacement and relocation because you can't have an adequate life in your own home. Right. And so you have to move somewhere else to find that, that means and it's intentional too because right there's constrictions and funding right that is not sourced to those areas in a particular way in a particular reason and so I always like to begin this with all Diné people and all Native people actually and Indigenous people around the world carry intergenerational trauma and that's a fact (laughs) it's a fact for Diné specifically ours traces to the Navajo Long Walk in 1864, which we were forced to move from our traditional homelands to Bosco Redondo, which is actually Fort Sumner. Yeah. And that was a 300 plus mile trek. And so this was something that was very impactful for our community. And people think that it was just one walk, right? They think that, oh, they like rounded up our people and then made us walk that way. No, there's actually multiple treks. And so there's multiple walks that were going on at this time. And so some people were walking 300 miles. Some people were walking 350 miles. Some people were walking 400, right? And so it was like so drastic. And so we're there and we were able to sign a treaty with the federal government. But this is also the first time that gender is actually introduced to Diné people because the federal government would not sign treaty, which we're a matrilineal community, which means that women are usually in leader positions or uh, making decisions, etc. And I want to be clear that when I say matrilineal or matriarchy, I don't mean it in a binary way. So there was queer people who were also recognized in those leadership roles too. And at that time, the US government wouldn't sign with queer and Native women or Diné women. And so we had two chiefs, Chief Manny Lito and Chief Barbancito, who signed the treaties, but they actually consulted with Diné women and queer folks in our community before they came and signed the treaty. So it's actually really interesting how that history kind of unfolds, right? But that was the first instance where like gender was introduced to us as like it, it was well known. 
all of this other trauma happens, right? Boarding schools, etc. But something really fascinating within our history that a lot of people don't realize is that in the 50s, 1950s, the Relocation Act and the Termination Act came into play through the federal government. There's this good point and good era in the 30s called the Indian Reorganization Act, which actually helped and benefited Indigenous communities. But of course, what's happening between 1930s and 1950s is World War II. And so they drop everything. A lot of the funds go to the war. And then everyone comes back, right? Everyone comes back and there's no, really no money. <laughs> and so they create this policy called the Relocation Act, which actually was an urbanization tactic that I argue with in my research that forced Native people to move to cities. And so my grandpa from Arizona, right, he was relocated to Chicago. And this was the purpose of the program was to find the farthest urban location away from your community so you're not able to go back. He was fortunate to come home because he worked for the Indian Health Service or um, IHS. And I kind of a, a disclaimer, not a disclaimer, like of verbiage and vocabulary. In terms of like policy, I will use like Indian, so Indian Health Services. I usually stay away from it because there's a social movement to use Native American or Indigenous in place because Indian is actually a colonial term that was prescribed onto brown bodies. And we can see that in the United States and we can see that in what we now know as India. It's a way of holding power. And so I stay away from the term unless it's in policy because that's how we're federally documented as in the in the eyes of the U.S. government. And, and that's so- still the case in, in law school. If you go to law school yeah, and you see, maybe... You can tell us how you feel about there are white students who are training to be lawyers who mm-hmm. study something called Indian law and mm-hmm. or, or how they term it as Indian law, uh, because that's the term that's used in the law codes that they're reading. Is there mm-hmm. another term that's being being used better? Yeah, I think a lot of people today are really moving toward Native American law. And so this new terminology, so you'll see in the Americas when they landed, of course, there was no borders, right, as we know today. And so all the indigenous people in North America were Indian. And that was because, right, we kind of know this history, kind of ironic that it's today too, like Indigenous People's Day and that colonizer, like not the colonizer's day anymore, but named us Indian because he thought he was going to India. But even then, India wasn't even made back then. And so it was a prescription onto brown bodies to name us as savage, as barbaric in a particular way, right? And so some of my work is like, are we able to reclaim Indian like other groups of people have reclaimed other terms? I don't think so because there's so much impact on it right and we have our own meanings of ourselves why Why not use that (laughs) but a lot of people are are moving toward native american law or saying native american law and policy etc or native american in place and that has been a big social movement and this is new so anything native american came a term in the 90s and so it's still relatively new and so i think unfortunately 
as people in the census, we are documented as American Indian, but I think there is a social movement to do Native American. And as I mentioned, it is a newer term in the 90s, like Two-Spirit came in the 90s as well. And so these are newer terms that people aren't familiar with when we've had, what, over 500 years with the term American Indian. And so we're now in, what, 30 years of Native American. But this is a really great time because we're reclaiming, we're healing, we're doing all these great things to help ourselves as people begin to thrive. And so I think listening to what Native people say, and of course, I think being mindful too of what I'm saying and what other Indigenous people are saying as terms of of right I've I've been around some people who are like I'm fine with the term Indian or I'm fine with and without knowing or healing right without processing what that means and oftentimes when unfortunately and I see it within my own family they are okay with it because they haven't healed they're okay with being called Indian because they haven't healed from their trauma and they're playing that role right and it's sad. And so I'm trying to help my community, my people, my family try to heal and process that and be like, no, don't call me Indian. Call me, call me this. And I know there will be a, there will be a slight pushback to me in this, but I'm okay with that because I feel like I am standing up for what is right. And I feel confident in that and I feel okay with it. So my grandpa was moved to Chicago, right, in the Relocation Act of 1950. And it actually went into place, I believe, in 1954, 56, one of the two. And my years are so messed up because I say the 50s, I think it was, I believe it was four, 1954, because um, I did write a paper about it and someone was like, why aren't you using 1954? And I'm like, because people were actually relocated before 54. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that the act, just because the act was declared and people were being moved before means that that's the year we should use. We should recognize that the whole era, right? But anyway, the goal of that program was to assimilate in a particular way, to move to cities, become, assimilate into this Western society of urbanization hopefully they were able to move back and their goal was and as i mentioned there was another act that was in place called termination and slightly scary right it was and so if there was enough people who left that community that reservation the federal government would be like well there's no need right there's no need for it anymore because they're all in the city so we'll just terminate and so they're not federally recognized that land doesn't exist anymore and so that's what they did So very impactful, right? And this was happening in the 50s and 60s to Native nations in the United States. As I I mentioned, yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting that you say like their act is in place and then, but this was taking place all along before and after. So what does the act actually mean? That the act itself, when we think of these things, when we think of a date or Mm -hmm. when we think of... particularly 1900s date and we think of an act and the way that we think through American history this way, Mm. that itself is an erasure of indigenous 
history, mm. right? Mm-hmm. This is all a Western, all Western concepts that we're operating under. So this idea that an act is what makes this might not necessarily have been the way to to interpret that for whoever's living it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's really weird too because I'll I'll touch on that a little bit because two lawyers and law policymakers, government makers. It's just a policy to them, right? To us who are experiencing it, it's our life, right? It's two completely different things happening at once. And it was funny because and I and I in an ironic way that my one of my uncles and my aunt, my mom's brother and sister. And I say that because Diné family structures is not the same as white family structures or Western family structures. We're based on a clan system, as I mentioned, matrilineal. So we get past our mother's clan and then our father's clan. And we're, we're related that way. Yes, we are still blood related to other to our siblings, but we have siblings outside of that as well. And so I want to recognize that as, as well because people often get confused. <laughs> and so when I say I have nieces and nephews, I have nieces and nephews from my cousins. And people are like, that's your first cousin or your second cousin or your third cousin. I'm like, no, that's not how it works in Diné culture. <laughs> but anyway, so my mom's brother and sister, before my mom was born in on the Navajo Nation or Diné Nation, right? They were relocated to Chicago, my grandpa, my grandma, my mom. And so they're in Chicago. My mom is really young at this point. She's about probably a newborn, almost three, maybe between that time era. And then we've always heard in our family that my my uncle and my aunt were born in Chicago. And we're like, what What were they doing in Chicago, right? Or what, what was my grandpa doing in Chicago and my grandma? And so we've always just had this running joke of like, Oh, they're born in Chicago, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then when my grandpa passed in 2018, we were writing his eulogy and my grandma was like, yeah, we went to Chicago because of the Relocation Act or the Relocation Program, which is what they called it. And I was like, the Relocation Act? And she was like, yeah, that's what it was. And I was like, so you this whole time, I thought you all were just in Chicago just for funsies. But you were actually moved by relocation. She's like, yeah, we were, we had to move there to like, to get a better life. I put that in air quotes for people who can't see. Um, and so it's really interesting, right? So like we see these policies and act as you're mentioning, and then we're seeing my, my life and my family. Um, and those aren't connecting, right? They're so different, so different from each other. When I think that just highlights a, th- thing we hear a lot when with individual stories people forget how recent history is <laughs> right to mm, have that connection mm-hmm. that oh my gosh this was my recent family history that was impacted by these laws we maybe read about in textbooks sometimes like this is so recent mm-hmm. yeah and so my grandpa was able to he was fortunate to come back to uh, Deneta, which is our traditional homelands, um, because he worked for Indian Health Service. A lot of Native people at that time weren't, um, and and I and I argue, 
and you'll see in your, even in your own cities too. And I, and I actually recommend that you do it too, to your major city or a city close by to you. You can actually see by design where native people are. You can see by design where poor people are. It's not a coincidence. Everything in a city is by design, actually. <laughs> and so the city of Phoenix, you can, you'll see there's, there's a, a street called Indian School Road. Why else is it called that? That's where the Indian School was. That's where the boarding school was located. And in that area is also the Indian Health Service. And so there's a lot of Indigenous people close to that, right? Proximity matters. But then if you actually look at poverty levels, those are actually the highest rates of poverty. It's not a coincidence. <laughs> and so a lot of people were stuck. And this is where my research kind of begins. But then I also tack on and add on. So this wasn't the end for my family, right? So they're back at home. And then the 70s come around. 1975 to be exact. Um, but this this program... I'll put it in air quotes again, what they call it a program. The Indian Placement Program or Lamanite Placement Program or Lamanite Program, whatever you want to call it, the Indian Placement Program came into effect in, I believe, the 50s. So at the same time, my grandpa was leaving to Chicago, et cetera. And um, when he came back, it was still in play. But basically what happened is that the LDS Church... Um, came onto a lot of, not just Diné, um, but a lot of Native nations close to Utah. So the surroundings of Utah and its neighbors came into these reservations and basically took Native children and forced them into baptism and forced them into foster care, right? That's really sad. <laughs> and forced them to go to school. And when I say foster care, they they intentionally separated children. So when my when my mom and my aunts and uncles were, were taken, they were all separated. They weren't in the same house together, right? It was intentional that they were that they were moved to live in different areas. And so my mom went to Provo. And I think a lot of them were like in suburbs of Provo. But they were intentionally not in the same school district either. So it was by design, right? But my mom always told me the story of like, it, it's really interesting to hear her story too, because it's like, she remembers good moments, but then she remembers bad moments. She remembers like, she learned this from the program and she doesn't think she'll learn it if she wasn't in that program. And I'm like, is this assimilation talking? What is this? Um, but it's really interesting to like help her process this because a lot of it, right? She went in at 10 um, and 1970 and my aunts and uncles did too. And she always told me that she remembers getting picked up by a yellow bus, a yellow school bus. And they like drove up to Provo. They went into a church building and she said they went in one door, like they sat in one area. They went in one door got baptized, and they went out the back entrance and gave them to their family. So they didn't even know to say bye. You know, they didn't even know to say bye to each other in that moment. And so they like went into one room and went out the back door, she would, she said. And she was like, I remember going to that room. They told me to basically get into 
the baptism robes, right? Um, and she was like, I got baptized. It was just like, yeah, that was it. And then went into the next room and she was like, I, she said she was shock and in silence because she was like, this is the first time I'm seeing a white, like, of course there's, you see white people on TV, but she was like, this is the first time a white person like came up to me and gave me a hug. Right. And she was like, it was really weird. And she was like, so I went there and she was like for like a whole week, she said that she never left her room because she was so scared. And she did make really good friends with um, her sister, her foster sister. And it's really interesting because she's always like my foster sister um, or my foster family. Right. And it's like so wild to think about. Like my mom was in foster care, you know, Um <clears throat> But by force. Uh, and she would always tell me stories about like what it was like growing up. And she was like, we never really left the house. And we always had chores to do. Like, um, but I, I don't I don't know if this is just a very like LDS thing, who knows? But she was like, we they had their own farm. And so she was like, we would have to go and like collect eggs in the morning, feed the animals, etc. And like Everything her foster mom would make, like all of her clothes her foster mom made, they only went to the store to buy like toilet paper and like canned goods and the rest that they did themselves, basically. And so she tells me that she has good memories and bad memories of that experience. Really interesting about that time. But she was in there for six years and my grandpa found out. So my grandpa and my grandma separated when they got back to Navajo Nation. And my grandpa didn't know that they were taken. And so he came and took them back and he was able to do that. And it's interesting because this happened in 1975, right? Very recent. But in 1978, an act came into place called the Indian Child Welfare Act, which actually prevents, um, it protects Native children in the United States um, from from having this done to them. And so there's a twist, a little slight twist to it. So I believe it's documented from existing Native homes, right? So that clause, when it was in effect in 78, said existing Native homes. So what does that mean? Everyone who was taken before 78, who were in LDS placement program homes or foster care, um, were not in existing LDS homes, so it was okay for them to stay there. So basically what that meant is that everyone from 1978 onwards were existing people and they just graduated them out. And that was the end of the LDS placement program. But isn't that wild that it didn't stop at 1978, it, it, it ended when the last student graduated from the program. And that program lasted, and it's not like it was just a couple of years. Right. The students were there until 1996. Yeah. I think actually the last student graduated in 2000. Okay. I thought from high it school. Was- yeah. Okay. I think it was 2000. Like, so they were young, right? So I believe in 19, they were taken in 1978 and then graduated high school in like 2000 or something. So very interesting. But 
right? So they're one of the things that my mom always mentions to me. And I, I use this in my research too, is that like, I argue that this is, was modern day boarding school, right? It was a tactical boarding school. Yep. It was a, it was an urbanization tactic, right? Reservation to Provo. Provo of, it isn't the biggest, but it is still a city, right? And so it was an urbanization tactic that we've seen from Relocation Act, right? It was another, another tactic. A lot of people, if you see um, in Provo, there's actually a, a big native population there. If you if you have been around the area, there's actually a lot of. A, a, yeah. I was actually shocked at how big it was because those are people who graduated out and stayed in Provo, right? Many um, many went to BYU too. Yeah, and many. Um, if you actually. Fun fact, but also kind of not fun. <laughs> Do you know that song, um, Go My Son? Yeah, that Living Legends performs at BYU. Yes, 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 yes. That is actually from this program. Really? Yeah. So it was actually made like from people who went through this program, basically trying to encourage people to like continue on to this program because the whole purpose was to... Okay, so there's two stories coming on here. One of them is that Native people are fed that you'll get a better education, a better livelihood, which is very uh, impactful because it's saying that Native people don't have, right? It continues this barbaric Indian trope, and I put this in quotes. Um, the second one is that, um, and and a lot of LDS people were fed, is that that they very interesting because my everyone in the program would, would was called Lamanite to their face literally to their face as children not just that so this is like the pet project of Spencer W Kimball he's in charge of this church committee so i mm. also put this in in quotations church committee on indian relationships this is like his his thing and what he mm. promotes, how he goes out and promotes mm. this is to say, he quotes the Book of Mormon. Correct. To say that the children are coming home whiter, like literally yeah. whiter. Yes. I didn't want to say it because I was afraid to say it. <laughs> I don't even know why I was afraid to say it. Uh, I think, you know, it's it's really wild because I know the truth and it's hard to sometimes talk to LDS people about this because there's a form of I don't want them to feel guilty about my history but I'm also like I shouldn't have to feel that way I should just tell them like what is happening and then there's also a lot of pushback too that I've received from this in ways that's like that's like I I don't I feel like we wouldn't do that Okay, you feel that, but we did, you did, <laughs> you know, like, it happened. Um, but yeah, the, the whole purpose was to, and they believe that if these Native children, and of course, at this time, um, very, very racist um, in a lot of ways, um, they really believe that if Native children graduated from this program, they would be cleaned and would basically turn white wild to think right and you're now today you would be like 
that's silly, <laughs> right? But it's like, no, that's what they actually thought. Um, and that's why they pushed it so hard. Something wild, really, really wild, is that people who, and you might have more experience with this, Kate, and you could also chime in as well, but when I went to, I went to Utah with my family, and one of my aunts lives there, but in, ni- or in 2015, 2015, yeah, and we visited my um, my mom's foster family because her, I believe both of her foster parents passed away. So we went to go visit um, the siblings and they were still in the same home, etc. But they still called her a Lamanite. In 2015. I've and- heard... Yeah. This is this is a continuing practice. The people are people continue this. How I would interpret this is that the church, quote unquote, does not issue apologies and so things change mm. or they have these different policy changes without ever saying what used to be the policy and why it was wrong before. And so mm. if you've learned that and you've never heard anybody say any different you're going to keep implementing that, that mm. language. And I think it continues into 2022. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was weird because like, I was just, I was thrown back. It was like, we're all brown here, right? We, it was me and my sister and my mom. And I was like, wow, if that's how they view my mom, that's how they view us. Right. And so it just set up this relationship that I didn't feel comfortable in that space um, because I knew how they viewed us, right? Um, And the, like, living impact of it today is still present. Um, A lot of my family, I know for a fact, is messed up because of the program. And that is, like a nice way to put it in a in a way but I'll jump to kind of like a little bit of of my story and then a little bit of my family's again but so when my mom left the program she was brought back to the Navajo Nation right Dineta, and she finished high school but then she was like I don't feel LDS Right, so she left the church uh, because they're calling me Lamanite. They, I know I'm brown. I don't. I won't fit in. Um, and then um, she was like, "I, I don't feel Diné enough because." And this is like, it's really interesting. But she's like thinking about they just let me go, right? What community lets me go? And that is like heartbreaking, right? But it's not that the tribe just let her go. It was a forced removal, right? Um, and so her whole life, and being young, right? You don't you don't know how to process that, especially at 18. <laughs> I know for a fact a lot of 18-year-olds won't know that if they experience trauma is that these policies are coming into play, right? Well, it was me in 2018. And how old was I? That was... Um, like 25, 24, maybe, no, maybe 22, 
um, where I just found out about relocation and the connection to my family, right? Being 18 and experiencing that trauma and then like she, there's no way for her to make that connection, right? And so she was like, I'm just going to push both away. I don't want to be LDS. I don't want to be Diné. And so she moved to Phoenix. And that's kind of where my story begins. And so I always tell people within this dichotomy of like urban versus reservation native or being native enough to be mindful of people's trauma because it is very impactful and important to know. And so that's why I try to embrace this urban identity more um, because there is a history behind it. There is, there is, um, and a lot of people are like, just go back home or go to learn your language. Sometimes it's not that easy, right? How do we, how do we first begin to heal this trauma first? How do I first begin to, yes, I've been home. I love Dineta, right? But how do I first process what happened to my family, right? You can't just do something without processing what had happened to everyone, right? Um, but it's really interesting because she, I think the Indian placement program did its job in a lot of ways to ingrain and indoctrinate Mormon beliefs into Native people through this program, even if they left even if they're not practicing LDS anymore. And I see that with my family a lot. I see a lot of, some of the good, right? I was raised with a single mom who taught me a lot about like good stuff, right? Good morals and right. You this is stuff you learn and you want to, and this is what you like share and are proud about like LDS culture, right? LDS and Mormonism is like, being a good person, being a good relative, taking care of your body, et cetera, right? All of those things. And so we were raised with those, of course. And so a lot of it, when I had LDS friends, a lot of, we connected because of all of those, right? Um, no swearing, no, all this other stuff, right? And so it's really funny that like this came into play and my mom didn't even think about it being LDS, but it's like, it's so LDS, you and you know it is. And so, like being in there for six years, I'm sure she's gonna implement some of that when she's having children. But then some of the the bad, which I'm like, I critique is like this the and I'll be open and honest about it. There is this underlying judgment or critique, or I am because I do this because I'm morally right that I'm a better person than you. And we all know some people in the church who are like that. And um, and I think that is some of the attitude that has been put onto my family, which causes a lot of tension um, in, in, a, in terms of like, like, I think that was just so traumatic and they don't want to acknowledge that it was traumatic. And so they just let their violence of that type of behavior continue. They let their their um, blindness to not heal, to not love, be that, right? Um, and something that was brought up, 
I, I went to my sister. My sister got married uh, last week. <laughs> so that was very exciting. Um, but something that was brought up by a family member, I'm not going to say who, um, is that they said, this is a really amazing moment because I use quotes, Indians, it's hard for Indians to show love. And I'm like, that is not true. That is not true. Um, one, ick, that used Indian. <laughs> but two, um, and it was funny because, like, why use the term Indian when we're all Diné in this space? That doesn't make any sense. But that's besides the point. Anyway, so I'm like, I've been reflecting a lot. And I'm glad that kind of happened before we recorded this podcast because that shows you it's not that Native people don't know how to show love or care. It's because of all this trauma that they've been through, right? My family has been through a lot. Um, and this and the placement program is another one. I do want to be um, like mindful and respectful, right? There's so much that is happening at this time. I believe there was about 50, was it 50,000? Roughly around 50,000 Native children who went through this program. So of course, there's going to be varying experiences throughout. Of course, right, there's Diné people who live in Utah who still practice, etc. But then there are stories of abuse, in these homes, in these foster families, right? Um, And a lot from, like, violence of of physical, mental, sexual abuse, right? This was happening in these homes. Um, And so there's this huge spectrum that is happening between this experience. Um, And I don't know fully what, what my family's experience is only my mom, right? Um, And she mentioned that it was not like those other experiences, uh, but she does know that. I believe one of my aunts, she said that her foster father was very abusive, like physically. And it's very ironic that that is happening, right? (laughs) Because you're taught not to have that happen in the church. (laughs) And I think when we say Native people don't know how to show love, it's because they've never received it. You know, we've never received it in a particular way that we deserve. These foster families can say that they love us all they want, but what was their end goal, right? What was their end goal was to turn us white. It was to continue to call us Lamanites. It was to continue to... Hopefully that when we are loyal to the church, that we will like not be brown anymore and be a part of their culture. Um, And so it's just like very impactful. So what do you learn as a child growing up in that? And just think about like, I know why. And this is why I'm like, you need to have queer and trans friends because you learn how to love, right? I love my mom to death um growing up I never experienced love like other people experience love from their parents right but that's because she didn't know how to do it because she was never taught she never learned from people she never had that 
that help or guidance because she's always been taught this narrative that Native people are this way or that she has to be strong and she can't show vulnerability or she has shown it, right? And violence has happened, like being taken, et cetera. And so it was very, an, a very interesting comment that this family member said at the at the reception. But Could I you think, think about that? yeah, yeah. Um, actually, two things. Um, yeah. First, first is that um, I think this is something that that queer people within the church can definitely relate to. That mm. this idea that you're going to be changed. That mm. our that something about us is always going to be changed in the future, and this and that that means that you can't be loved now, mm. and so this mm. when you're put into these families that aren't your family mm-hmm. um, at a very young age, and they treat you different, mm-hmm. they call you a different name, mm-hmm. um, and say eventually you're going to get to this other point. It's a, it's a very similar process to what we do. We have in our families of eventually, you know, we won't, we don't like you now, but we will eventually. So I, right. I see some parallels there, but the other thing I want to say is that this is well-documented. The abuse is well-documented. These are major mm-hmm. cases. You can look this up. Um, the church has, has gone to court in many instances over this. So, um, if you're following along and you're wondering about this, there's lots of stuff that you can look up. There are lots of um, articles, academic articles as well, of people who have talked about their experiences and newspaper articles as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and of that. course, of course, you're going to if you you have three, three siblings here who are put in three different families, that just ups your chances of having a family member in an abusive situation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think a really great thing about my mom is that she will somewhat listen to me. <laughs> um, and in terms of like, right, I'll say something and she'd be like, oh, that makes more sense as to why my family did this or the foster family did this. When I said like, they... I was like, I, I just found it very disrespectful when they called you a Lamanite to your face in 2015. <laughs> and she's like, why? That's what they always called me when I was young. And I didn't find an issue with it. And I was like, but this is what Lamanite means. They're like the barbaric savages in the Book of Mormon, right? And she was like, I didn't really connect it. Like, I was just so used to it because we just, at that time, Native people were Lamanites, Right. And I'm like, but that's, that's not true. And that's why I'm trying to help you heal um, because it is traumatic and very impactful. But um, yeah, it, it, it gets to a lot of, of these complex relationships with the church, with people of color, with indigenous people, because there's so much connections to it right and I think a lot of people like to write off that it was in the past or we don't know about it and if you don't know about it there's a reason why you don't know about it I had a conversation with my sister-in-law who is practicing and my nieces and nephew are and my brother converted and amazing amazing 
people and I they're the type of people that's like like right it's we're gonna do good morally etc and etc and at the same time it's my relationship with Heavenly Father um and not other people's relationships so who am I to like judge other people or like butt into things but I also think my niece and nephews are very lit you know like it's that what is it what what gen are they in gen z i don't know um they're just like very hip like my nephew who is in seventh grade now literally when i moved it back during the pandemic and they're they're lds (laughs) just to just to clarify he was like telling people at school like support blm you have to support it and he was like this one kid said no and i was like okay, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt because even some adults don't even know. My nephew is what? <laughs> fifth grade at this point. And so he's like, it means this. And like black people matter and they're important and we should care for them as we care for everyone else. But in this moment, we should care. And he was like, that, and that kid was like, I know what it means and I don't support it. And he's like, okay, well, we're canceling you. <laughs> and so we like canceled it. And, and my brother was like, you shouldn't be doing that at school. And then I was like, I'm proud of you. Do it. <laughs> but it, see, I'm like, I think because my nieces and nephews are like, are like, and I, and I think that's what's so exciting about this upcoming generation is that they're not taking shit, right? They're not they're being reasonable and that's what I want to see within the church within our communities within native communities within like the the world right is that people can hear about these stories and not live an ignorant life um and I think there's multiple sides to everything right I'm trying to think (laughs) let me rephrase that I think sometimes we live in a and I, I often tell people, we actually live in a limitless, limited world. And the limited part is only because of settler colonialism. We don't have this imagination anymore or a possibility to imagine a future that is hopeful or thriving because of the confines of settler colonialism, right? And so I think it's really important that like, we inform folks and tell people and and encourage folks that like I mean life is we only have one shot right and so why don't we make it ours make it make the most of it but I'm very very proud of like my nephew who is doing this work in fifth grade (laughs) now he's in seventh grade and I'm like this is really cool And I think that that has opened my brother and my sister-in-law's eyes more. I remember them because I lived with them during the pandemic. They would tell me stories about people who were very (laughs) pro-Trump in the church and um, very anti-BLM. And I think just having conversations with them, they're just like, we just try to stay away from them now because it's just like too much. And I think because their kids are just very woke now. <laughs> they're like, this is so hard for for us to be around them. And they're like, it's a really interesting mentality to be around because they're like, 
they're so nice to your face and on social media they're like why do why should we care about BLM or pro Trump and I'm like this is the very interesting facade that I'm talking about that has impacted my community right they're taught a particular way of being a particular way of sounding which I don't think is I'm trying to think about it I don't think it is the real way to navigate the world you shouldn't have to be fake to someone's face and encouraging because you believe that Heavenly Father is watching you in that moment you should be a good person to be a good person you know right um and I don't think you should always justify your reasonings or even justifying your toxicity. And I think another part that I think is processing through my family's minds is that a lot of the times people get taught in the church that it is okay to make mistakes or it's okay to do violence um, because you can repent. I think it is okay to make mistakes because that's life. We will always make mistakes. I don't think it is okay to do violence, perpetuate violence, because there's this narrative. And I don't, maybe you all have talked about this on the podcast. And I have seen it from my own experience. I have seen it from um, the way that my family is treated or like the way my family has treated other people. Um, and I, and I will say it, they, they have done violent acts, right? Um, but I have seen people who have been taught that they can repent for their sins of being violent, which doesn't do anything but create that cycle of, I'm going to be violent because I can repent and I'll be good. I'm Gucci, right? Um, and this is something that has been ingrained within my family too, which has been what really wild to just see. Um and that gets me to a little bit of like my work and the healing and the, I have, I like to say that my work is very interdisciplinary of like what I do, but my main focus is looking at urbanization. And so right now I'm writing my dissertation um, on urbanization and arguing that urbanization is a settler colonial tool that perpetuates racialized, gendered and sexualized violence onto um, Indigenous bodies, especially Indigenous women and queer Indigenous people. Um, and we can see that in, in cities. So I'm doing a cross analysis between Phoenix, which is where my story comes in. And I, and I kind of tell this whole story to set up my dissertation and how I got into urbanization and urban planning and design. Um, and so now it kind of makes sense. A lot of people are like, how did you jump to urban planning from your whole, from like just that, right? And it makes sense. Um, there's so much trauma and there's so much healing that needs to be done. And I think that can be found within urban areas. So that's just where my work is going. And so it is a lot of urban planning, urban design, urbanization and critiquing it, but also how we can include love and and thrivance within this work to um, help our communities heal. I think, and I just submitted something 
really recently. So I'm really excited about it, um, about us being the healing generation. Like we're at a time right now where we're in the healing generation. Um, and it, and I say that very proudly because, right, a lot of my family experienced trauma and because of the protection and the survivance of them, um, I, of course, I've gone through some shit myself, but I think we're at a point where we can, all of this is kind of stopping. That ended in like 2000, right? So from 2000 onwards, which is like kind of my era, um, we're beginning to see this light healing happening and it's very exciting. And so I call this like, we're the healing generation. Yes, we still have people who are experiencing trauma, but we're at a point where these policies are no longer hopefully going to impact us in the ways that it has been before. But as I mentioned, it's so recent. Native people didn't get citizenship until like the 60s, by the way. Native people didn't get the right to vote until like the 70s, by the way. Um, and so it's very interesting that like, this is all new for us at this point. And so when people write off like Native people get all of this benefit, we don't. I'll debunk that right now. We don't get anything. Um, and also, um, if we do get something, it's for a reason, right? Uh, because this land was taken <laughs> forcibly. This is excellent. Thank you so much. But I, I think there's an interesting dichotomy here to point out that lives inside of you that you do. You mentioned that your father's from Laos. Um, that there is this, what we imagine what violence looks like. And there Mm. is certainly violence and and deep PTSD from Mm. the the Vietnam War, from what we Mm -hmm. call the Vietnam War, right? There's the French Indochina, there are lots of names for it. um, Right. Because it's not just Vietnam. So there's this... this intergenerational trauma that lives inside of you that is this sort of Mm. violence that we think of as violence. And I want to unpack for listeners the term violence Mm. in this other Mm. aspect of taking families away from one another, cultural genocide. These things are very, very violent. And we don't talk about that within the Mormon community as violence. Mm. We don't think of it as violence. We think of it exactly as you're saying. Like if you say it with a nice face or if you say it, I'm I'm loving you while mm. I'm making it impossible for you to live, that mm. is violent. Mm. Um, so I think I just think it's interesting that you have these very violent paths that are happening in two very different ways. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. I, and I, I think you bring up a very, very great point too. Um I've been delving into All About Love by Bell Hooks. Have you heard about it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so, so good. But I I want to mention this to listeners. Read it. It's really good. Um, it It is, I do have a slight critique that it's very binary. Um, but other than that, it's actually very good. Um, and in terms of how to how we learn how to love and experience love. And something that Bell Hooks mentions in that piece is that, and this is a great opportunity for folks in this space to listen and also 
what's it called? Like think about past experiences and how what your worth is because you're worth a lot, right? Um, but she mentions that there are instances in your life where people will do violence to you, violent harm, uh, whether that is physical, whether that is uh, mental or spiritual, and will continue to say that they love you. And she says that is not love. And so I think there's a lot to learn in that in that regards um, in terms of how we begin to perceive the church and what um, Kate is saying in like, we see you, we love you, et cetera. And we're going to continue to let this violence happen. That's not love, right? That That isn't love. There needs to be act of love to be shown. Um, and then also, I think, thinking in your own personal life, have you been in relationships or been in experiences that people have done this to you and be like, I still love you or have like done all this awful shit to you and be like, I still love you. That's not love either. So I think it's really important for us to reflect and and think about the world as not as rigid as we may think or have been taught that it is, right? There's so much out there and I don't I think we live in a I always tell I always tell people this too, which I think is really exciting and I want to write a piece about it. Um we I'm always like I want to write a piece about this. We I think the first step in understanding this concept of living um, in a limitless, limited world is actually understanding queer and trans experiences outside of binaries, right? If we begin, I think it helps people when you when you begin to not see the binary of gender anymore and understand that there's so much diversity within that, you actually get yourself out of the binary of everything else. It's really interesting how it works. And so there's always, we'll, and um, you'll get taught something like, don't drink coffee or this happens, or like, it's bad to drink coffee, right? Or it's bad to swear. Why? There, there's reasons to the to these to these concepts, but I also think there it's not always this bad or good, this right or wrong. These are binaries that we actually need to kind of get out of. Um, and sometimes I'm like, oh, did I do this right or did I do this wrong? And I get myself stuck in it too. And I think. Um, other folks have as in this space as well have been like, oh, did I do this right? Did I do this wrong? And I think there really is never a right or wrong unless unless you are hurting someone, unless you are putting violence onto someone or harm onto someone. Yes, there is a right and wrong. But other than that, I really don't think there is um, or violence onto yourself. Um, I don't really think there is. And that helps us understand the world a little better and actually helps us become better kin to each other um and and it's really interesting navigating the world like with that experience but yeah just to circle back there's still a lot of healing that is to be done to my family um 
there is a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of, I, I think we've often separated ourselves from the church, except from my brother and sister-in-law who, who are practicing. Um, and I grew up in East Mesa. For folks who in the space who might know, East Mesa is very LDS, very, very much so LDS. Um, we have two temples now that are like neighbors to each other. <laughs> and like, this is, why do we need two right up the street from each other? <laughs> but they're actually really pretty. Um, and one one of them does temple lights, so that's really fun. Um, so I grew up in a very LDS area. So see, like what I'm saying, that my my mom had these teachings that even though she wasn't practicing anymore, she was still was indoctrinated in. So there wasn't a coincidence that she just moved to a Mormon area. Um, and so we lived in like the better neighborhood, air quotes. Um, and so I went to school with a lot of LDS folks. Um, I didn't really know at the time what LDS was. And, and, and so that's why I resonated a lot with so many of them. And which is really interesting navigating through that. And then, um, of course, I'm like, was in love with this one, not in love, but I was crushing on this one LDS guy. And, um, and so I was like, I mean, I was raised kind of LDS anyway, so might as well be baptized. And so I was baptized. And I was like, oh, why did I do that? That's such a silly thing to do. So for listeners, don't baptize yourself for a person, <laughs> for a man. It's not worth it. <laughs> and then he married a woman. <laughs> um, but that's a little bit about me and the work that I do. So I know, um, so I have a really interesting, which I think you two might as well, right? This really interesting, complex, familiar nostalgic violent I don't we could continue this list of relationship with the LDS church right it's very I hate it I love it I've learned a lot I have grown a lot as a person what does it mean for me to be queer a person of color a descendant of survivors from the LDS the Indian placement program and be successful, right? What does what does that all mean in today? And like it's so it's this really interesting, very complex relationship that I have with with the church, that I have with LDS people, that I have with the trauma that I'm healing through, which I think is very common in, in this space. Thanks for joining us today for part one of Suksavan's story. Next week, we'll be back for part two, and we'll hear more about the Lamanite Placement Program as well as Suksavan's personal queer story. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. Mm-hmm.